Welcome to 50 Date Night Screams. I'm Amber Tresca. And I'm Mike Tresca. We're a married couple who decided to celebrate our 50th birthdays by watching some old movies. A lot of old movies. Join us as we watch 50 movies on our date nights and have fun dissecting them. As a bonus, each episode is accompanied by an original character I created and designed for use in your tabletop role-playing games. Many of the movies we watch are unrated, but this podcast is not. 50 Date Night Screams contains mature themes and is intended for adult audiences, so take care when listening. Plus, there are spoilers. Check the show notes to see where you can watch this movie before you listen. We're glad you're here. Have a seat, grab a glass of your favorite beverage, and get ready to scream along with us. I'll return and be avenged. Turn around. All of you. I am the Crimson Executioner. <laughs> This day shall be written in blood. No man can judge me. I am the supreme law. I shall have my revenge. Hey, Mike, what is up? Hey, Amber. Not much. Just, you know, watching movies. So I'm really excited to sit down with you here in our studio. It's quite nice in here, wouldn't you say? I love it. Uh, it took a long time to get it here, but I'm pretty excited about uh, how it came out. So, yeah, it's, I, I guess it's an office and a studio. Yeah, it is both. And, of course, that's what I like to call my little corner, my studio. And now you have your little corner of our shared office in our home, and that is your studio. How about that? I was very jealous I actually copied you. I mean, we, they don't look the same, but I definitely wanted to have my own little corner. So I even have a tchotchke corner, which I'm excited about. But, yes, yes, we have our – we each literally opposite of each other have our own corners. Well, it's really perfect for us to start off our first episode of 50 50- – Date night screams. I love that. Hopefully, well, I think there's more screaming on the screen than from us, but that's okay. That's okay. That's a good place to start. Yeah, I think that's fine. So <laughs> let's get started with our first movie here, which is The Bloody Pit of Horror. And that is directed by Massimo Pupillo. Did I say that right? I don't speak Italian. Uh, Pupillo. I think Pupillo is probably close. Yeah, Pupillo. So. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. And Massimo probably Massimo. Mass- Massimo. Oh. <laughs> yeah. All right. Like Massimo Pupillo. Massimo. Yeah, there you go. Yep. Directed by Massimo Pupillo. This movie has a 4.5 rating out of 10 on IMDb. So maybe that tells us a little bit of something off the bat. It is unrated. And one of the interesting things about this movie is that the, the lead actor is Mickey Hargitay, who was Mr. Universe in 1955, which we didn't find out until after we watched the movie, and it made a whole lot of sense. He was also married to Jane Mansfield, and he had three children with her, one of whom is Mariska Hargitay. So an interesting piece of trivia there. All right. I'm going to give a summary of the movie. You and I have already watched it. So mm-hmm. but I'm going to give a summary for anyone who hasn't seen it yet. All right. Are you ready, Mike? I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay, good. An agent for a company that publishes paperback mystery novels is in the Italian countryside to find a location where he can shoot photos for book covers. With him is the author and his secretary, the models, 
and the photographer. They find a great location in an old castle, but there's no answer when they knock on the door, and they think it's abandoned. They break in to find the owner is there, but he allows them to stay. During the photo shoots, the models and the photographer are tortured and murdered one by one. I love how that description just sort of covers what would probably be just someone accidentally finding the wrong house. And then by the end of it, it's just, everybody's tortured and murdered one by one. It really turns dark at the end of that description. I know, right? Well, it's also wild because, like, literally, they break and enter into this castle. And then the owner is like, no, I don't want you here. And they're like, oh, but really, we like it here. and It's going to be great. And then he's like, oh, all right. Yeah. Then there's an, a weird glance that is explained later. And then he's like, oh, OK, fine. You can you can stay for no reason. But don't go in the basement. <laughs> I, the one thing that was a saving grace is he didn't say, go, don't go into the bloody pit of horror. So it was nice that he didn't cell phone there. But he did. Uh, he did warn them. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I don't know. I feel like if you're doing some B&E, like what happens to you after that, like, it's just that, that's on you. That's on you. Better so, horror movies may, have been made on that premise. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I had no idea what this movie was about. I don't think you did either. What did you think when that opening scene began, when the credits came up? Well, before we before we get started on that, I saw the ad. The ad quotes the Count Marquis de Sade. Which so I thought that was going to have something with Marquis de Sade because I did see the ad and it has nothing to do with the Marquis de Sade, but except maybe tortures involved. So uh, that was exciting. But yeah, it's pretty much people at a castle, and they seem kind of clueless and there to be murdered. But one of the things that was interesting, which was a little bit of a a nod to the premise, was that they were there to do horror books that are meant to be. Um, gothic is probably the best way to put it we understood why they were trying to go into the spooky castle they literally had a good reason that's probably the only that made sense in this movie they literally had a good reason to go there right it made a good backdrop for what they were trying to do which was to shoot book covers which is kind of weird because i'm also like did you really need to take pictures like shouldn't these be drawn like they could be drawings right like why did you need to take photos and they were photos for what we discovered in our research was called, I think, yellow novels or mm -hmm. or yellow fiction or something like that. So they were kind of mystery novels. And then they would have this interesting cover with usually like a woman that was dressed in some kind of a wild costume. Like one of the costumes was like she was a pirate, but she was <laughs> not. She was half naked, frankly. And what were some of the other ones? I forget. Somebody was dressed as a knight because they were also male models. So there were male models menacing the female models, which was great. Somebody definitely dressed as a knight with like an axe. But it also gave them the excuse to engage with what was clearly terrifying torture devices and other things, which would prove to be their undoing. But it, it did like they really went for it because they had a good excuse. They had it there. That was a prop. And they, the castle was a prop, and they were there to do spooky things. So, like, this has got to be one of the first horror movies where you're like, all right, yeah, they're morons, but they morons who had a reason to go into the bloody pit of horror. <laughs> well, they didn't know that that's what they were doing. So when the opening scene began, it opens with you're back in the day of the Crimson Executioner, which I think was in the 1600s, I think it was supposed to be. Yes. So I remember turning to you at one point and I was like, well, 
that guy's going to come back later on. Like, you know, that's just going to happen. Like you could just see it, it sort of unfolding. So there was really not any surprises in, in that respect. But one of the things I usually notice about movies is the score, is the music. This score was so wild. <laughs> like It was really just like, like at points, it was just like one note for like minutes at a time. And I kind of wondered how that all came about and why. And in a horror movie, the music has a heavy part to play in it, frankly. And this music, this score really did not hold up its end of the bargain. <laughs> it was almost kind of laughable, truly. My favorite comment on one of the reviews was uh, Gino Piguri. I don't know if that's saying it right. They call it quirky lounge music carpets the tortures like Muzak. <laughs> and uh, that's sort of definitely the way I would put it, which was there was this vibe of almost sometimes pleasant and sometimes not there at all music going on. Well, frankly, horrible and disturbing things were happening. So the tone had ch and, and there was there were moments where the tone was pretty funny because there was them doing the shoots. But once it turned to ho actual horror, it's like that nobody told the composer. Yeah. Well, hopefully he knew what was going on. I just feel like maybe he had a different idea or the director had a different idea than perhaps what you and I, who grew up on the horror movies of the 70s and the 80s and some really iconic scores tend to think of as a score for a horror movie. So it was definitely a little jarring as, as far as I was concerned. I don't know. Maybe that... Uh, Maybe that plays into the, the IMDb rating of 4.5. <laughs> By the way, 4.5 uh, is probably pretty good. Spoiler alert. <laughs> the, stuff, <laughs> the stuff we're about to face in 50 movies, 4.5, not bad. <laughs> this is true, you know. You'll make a big hit in that costume, Manny. Won't I, too? What? Oh, no, what's gotten into you? You mustn't hide those beautiful legs of yours. So what did you think about that ending? So one of the things that the show, I think the movie tried to really reinforce was um, it gave it a sense of history. There was this flashback that starts the movie where he's in I said, like a luchador red costume. They see him put to death. It They explain a lot. They, a lot of the movie tries to ground it in explaining things. Um, in fact, to the point where it would have been OK if this was just a supernatural spooky story. Um, but it turns into a somewhat realistic assessment of a man's narcissism and I think a commentary on bodily perfection. But even those points aside, the concept that they try to make it realistic, that they actually over explain that it's not a ghost uh, where the main character, who's a journalist, uses the crimson executioner's dead body to sort of try and terrify the, the villain is all about like this idea of playing his insanity against him instead of just being, I, I don't know, a standard bog standard battle. So I thought the way the movie really tried to have its cake and eat it too, it wanted to be scary, but it wanted to be taken seriously by making it, and I'm doing air quotes here, realistic, I thought was fascinating because it, it was a lot of effort to essentially try and get, be legitimate. Right. And you know what I'm thinking of? And I, it didn't really occur to me until literally just now as you were explaining that aspect of it is I'm thinking of Psycho. Yeah. Right? So in Psycho, the protagonist, the villain, whatever you want to call him, the murderer, 
is taking on the persona of his own mother for complicated psychological reasons. And this is the same kind of thing. The The owner of the castle takes on this persona of the Crimson Executioner, which I had so many questions about why he owned a castle that contained the body of a person who was killed 300 years prior, ostensibly for some kind of crimes. I mean, executioners in the man's name. So that must have, you know, he must have done the verb of that. He must have executed people at some point and then was put to death and then left in the basement of this castle. It's a weird thing, too, as Americans, we don't have anything that old here. We don't, you know, you're not going to come across a castle. I, I mean, so the whole thing is just very out of time in place for us. But this man is torturing and murdering people almost as though he thinks he's the Crimson Executioner. Oh, he thinks he is. I yeah. mean, he makes that clear. And then, but then there's this idea also that the dubbed version that we're watching may not have dialogue that fits what the original Italian was, which, of course, we have no way of knowing. We just know because we've seen that discussed in different places when we were doing our research. Right. And and it's interesting because if you look at, again, relying on other parties who translate for us, um, the Italian version is very much talking about personal body perfection. So it's, he's talking about himself and his love of his own perfection, whereas the American, the English version is talking about how everybody else discusses him, the the models and the the characters because of what they're doing, right? The 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 sort of lewd nature of the photo shoot is what offended him. So it really is an interesting cultural uh, nuance that it doesn't change the end result, but it definitely puts a different spin on that. Because to your point, again, going back to that, they tried to put science in this, right? So the, his bot, the ex crimson executioner gets executed himself, but doesn't seem to decay. And that seems to be a sign to, by the way, a washed up actor. Uh, incidentally, that's the other thing that's sort of an interesting spin on this. He's an actor. So I don't know what that says about actors or the director's perspective on that, but he's turned this washed up actor in uh, skulking alone, not alone. He has minions in a castle and he's essentially using it to uh, presumably execute these bloody fantasies against people he doesn't like. And it wasn't just talking about what he did, he actually had a connection to one of the characters. I don't know if you remember what that was. Right. He had been engaged to her or something like that. Right. They, they, they knew each other, essentially. But nobody else knows that. It was just so weird. It was almost like an afterthought. It was so weird that that was part of the movie. And and then, of course, she's one of the ones that lives, presumably because she's not a model. She's not posing in the clothing, which also, by the way, he's running around talking about himself being perfection, which, yeah, he's he's pretty jacked, you know. There's definitely some beefcake in this movie, you know, along with cheesecake. But what they're doing to our 2023 eyes is pretty tame, you know, honestly. The costumes and all of that, it's really not that big of a deal. It's some beautiful girls wearing some scanty, scanty clothing, you know, that that's literally all it is, and taking some pictures. So... But he has a big problem with it. Enough to put them in the bloody pit of horror. That's for sure. <laughs> I just like saying bloody pit of horror. I'm going to squeeze it as Clearly. much as I can. Clearly. <laughs> yeah. So he does bring some of them into the torture chamber that's in the castle. 
which on the one hand makes it perfect for their photo shoot, but on the other hand also makes it perfect for them to be murdered. And they kind of take their time with some of the torture devices to the point where I'm thinking a little bit like, can't, couldn't these girls have kind of gotten out? <laughs> you know, couldn't anybody have like gotten gotten away? Or wouldn't you have tried? It was just, uh, it was just a little weird, and I don't know what the point was, except that it was kind of just using women as props to be tortured and to be looked at being beautiful and being tortured. Yeah, and it's it's not funny, but it is something that brought me back to sort of when hostile and a lot of that torture porn is the phrase that came out. And the reality is that's, that was actually a trend coming back. And this was a clear proof of that, that uh, there was an audience for what essentially is in some cases kind of uncomfortably long torture scenes. That's how I put it, where they're just like more emphasis on the, and by the way, people are tortured to death. They're not like tortured and get away or torture and the camera moves away. People just get tortured and then just die on screen. The end. So it was really uh, a little bit of a shock to Marta. Certainly, it's not like we haven't seen horror movies, but to see uh, a very different goal, uh, which was to show that people were being tortured to death. And just and this isn't Friday the 13th. You get hacked up in some gory way. This dragged on. People were screaming for like, it seemed like hours. So it's very much a different uh, film. And I think that's where you get exploitation, right? They call it exploitative. And that's not an accident. That was the purpose. I don't think it was, it was, it was intentional. Right. So it was exploitative in parts. And we've certainly seen horror movies come along that go much, much further than this one did. And this was in 1965. I think in 1965, you know, obviously I wasn't alive then. You weren't either. But it would have been seen in a very different light, I think. I don't think this is something that was going to be shown in a regular movie theater with the name on the marquee that people would go on a Saturday afternoon. This seems more to me like something that would have been a little bit underground, you know, and it definitely has a cult following today. So when we were doing our research, we found all kinds of stuff. There's all kinds of people who discuss this movie and compare it to things that came before and things that came after. And then the little bit of trivia with the movie as far as who was in it and and things like that. So because the actors were not all necessarily uh, Italian. And uh, so it was just very interesting, both culturally and as far as the themes in the in the film, which are many. It's almost kind of like I'm not really sure that some of these themes that we're pulling out were the ones that were intended. But maybe that's I mean, that's what makes great art. Right. So I, I think you could say that the movie is hokey or campy or, you know, whatever, whatever you want to say in that. But I do think that it is a really interesting piece of art. And it certainly opened up some discussion points that we were able to take and, and run with. And, you know, as we think about the themes of this movie and bodily perfection and what is uh, immoral and, and how uh, people relate to one another, especially during that time period, which, of course, we're never going to know what it was like in Italy in 1965. <laughs> it's interesting because the, the nature of this is the movies, especially exploitation films, tell more about the people who make it, right? So I, there's always, I'm sure, some intent, but in a lot of ways, it, it ends up unintentionally revealing as time goes on 
more of what they what that time was like or what they were like or what the you know general thoughts were uh about certain people or topics and um certainly in the context of italy so this was rural southern italy according to what we read and the goal was really they wanted to show movies that were 90 minutes long for uh, the movie theater because that's when you do mid-film breaks to sell refreshments so in some ways things that seem interminable to us or go on for a while are meant to be not paid attention to i think one of the things that is definitely all these films we have to keep in mind is that when you look at them, they probably weren't meant to be watched and dissected like we're doing now. <laughs> you were probably making out in the back of uh, a vehicle and maybe looked up occasionally. And then you took a break and had some snacks. And then, you know, if there was a, an interesting murder scene, so the dialogue wasn't a big deal. The realism isn't a big deal. Uh, many of the <laughs> torture devices wiggle. So <laughs> yeah, they're not quite as dangerous as the, I think they were hoping, but I don't know that that was the Indian point. They didn't have to be that uh, realistic or deadly or, frankly, that philosophical. It had to be entertaining. And uh, we were entertained. Oh, absolutely. We were entertained. So that brings me to the big question. Is this a horror movie or is it something else? I think it, quite, it really pivots on how you feel horror. Uh, if torture is horror, seeing people scream for a, a prolonged period of time is somewhat horrifying. So I, I would put that in there. I think... There was there certainly a, there was a craze of trying to have movies horror themed, and that's how you sold it. So you know it is tame compared to modern standards, but I think for sure I would classify this one. I don't think we're going to always have that opportunity, but this one for sure I would classify as horror. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say the same. They desecrated the world of beauty with their sordidness. The day of the Crimson Executioner has now come. All right, now it's time for our rating system. We're going to rate this movie on how many knives it gets, how many wine glasses it gets, and how many screams. So our knife category is for what's the body count, how scary was it, how bloody was it. Wine is going to be how fun was it for a date night, how much did we enjoy ourselves. And then how many screams, just overall, what did we think of it? Why don't you go first? How many knives would you give this movie? Now, what's our scale, just to clarify our scale one from to, one? One to five. One to five. Okay, so uh, this is pretty violent. Uh, it's The tortures are up there. I would So I would give it, you know, yeah, there's obviously an upper level scale, which is super gross. I, I don't think it was quite that bad. So I'd, I'd give it between a three and a four. So leaning towards a four. Like a three point five. I don't know if we're like we three. It's like a knife, two, three knives and a handle. I don't know how that works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I would probably give it a solid three. I mean, the body count was pretty high, quite frankly. And you know, these women were tortured, and not only that, but the first death, the man is killed. And then he's just there, and they just proceed on with what they're doing with their photo shoot. Now, so to be fair, they say they want to leave, and the, the guy running the shoot says, I'll pay you double. And they say they still want to leave, and he says, I'll pay you triple. And they go, okay, fine. <laughs> so, I, so I'm just like, I don't know <laughs> if there's any dollar amount that you would want to continue taking your racy photos in a, I, I, they keep calling it a castle, like I don't really know, but a castle where a person has literally just been murdered and the body is still there. 
like bleeding out. Like it just doesn't, I don't know. There, I don't think there's any amount of money that you could stay for that. I don't, I don't, I don't think that that's quite defensible. <laughs> well, that, if for a rating of one to $5, that's just a $1 rating maybe. Okay. <laughs> All right. So how many wine glasses? So how much did we enjoy ourselves while, while watching this movie? I enjoyed it quite a bit. I, I uh, It's definitely between a four and a five. I wouldn't, there were certainly scenes that dragged, so it wasn't like we were loving every minute. But uh, this was an a, a unexpected treat in terms of – I think it spoiled us. I really want to think that all the films are going to be this kooky. But uh, <laughs> I would say that uh, definitely between a four and a five. So that's that's four and a half wine glasses. 4.5 wine glasses you'd give it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd give it a four. I think sometimes my measure of a movie, at least in our household, <laughs> is how often people get up. <laughs> so I think that uh, we each probably at least got up once to go to the kitchen or something. So if it's a really good movie, like nobody's getting up and, and going and doing anything, right? So... Yeah, I think I'd give it a four. Like, it was definitely enjoyable, maybe not in the ways that I expected. There's certainly a lot there that was disturbing because it was literally women being tortured. But at the same time, if you sort of just looked at it for what it was and watched it as a, a piece of art, a piece of fiction, it was pretty enjoyable, especially while you're having a glass of wine or an edible, or something. Totally agree. I, I think it was, uh, like I said, it was more fun than we expected. Yeah. All right. Overall, how many screams? Um, I think it's close to that three, between three and four mark, probably closer to the four. I think we ended up, it's one of those things, actually, I think we enjoyed talking about it probably more than watching it, um, because it was a lot of food for thought. I would say that that's true. That if you just watched it, and then didn't have the opportunity or the means to go and look up the different uh, different aspects, the cultural aspects that we that we don't understand from Italy and from the '60s and all of that. Like, you probably wouldn't find it as enjoyable. But I think I agree with you. I think like three point seven five out of five screams. You know, like like overall, it was enjoyable. It was pretty good for a date night movie, as long as you don't mind a little blood. <laughs> you know, but of course, you know, if you're picking this up, it's a movie called The Bloody Pit of Horror. That sets an expectation and that expectation was realized. So I think that was all fine. You know, it was good. It was definitely a good time. And and props for the name to living up to the movie living up to the name. I think there's definitely cases where a lot of movies want to be bloody or they want to be horror. And I would say it delivered. So I agree with that rating. Okay, so now we have a character. We have the Crimson Executioner. All right, Mike, you rolled up this character. You created him. So tell me, who is the Crimson Executioner? So the Crimson Executioner is uh, an interesting character. Again, sort of a gift. I feel like this character spoke to me pretty easily because, yeah, look, you get the he's an oiled up maniac who believes he's the either possessed or reincarnated soul of a previous maniac who was well preserved. So and he was he's both a torturer and he was tortured. I mean, there's so much to work with. So uh, we I use the Revenant as the basis, which is a undead, uh, basically sort of serial killer who's hell bent on going after someone else. And uh, use that as the basis. 
with some a couple of fun pieces. One was we actually didn't mention this earlier, but we have to mention it. There's a scene where he builds a giant mechanical spider web with the world's least convincing mechanical spider. I think it's supposed to be mechanical. I hope so. And he he traps one of the victims, and he has like two ways you can die. If you if you hit the spider web, the crossbows shoot you. If you just stay there, this the mechanical spider bites you and you die. And um, by the way, her explanation as she's in this torture device, it was a very long explanation of it. I don't know if I were in a torture device of of such a making that I would be coherent enough to explain it to my would-be rescuers, who, by the way, don't rescue her. <laughs> right. There's a horrible, slow Indiana Jones scene of, of the protagonist crawling along the ground. It's nowhere near as good as Indiana Jones. Nowhere near as good. But pretty hilarious. So that was like the highlight. So, I mean, that's got to be in there, right? I, I, I avoided the temptation of just making a spider with webs because I thought that was too that was too on the nose. And frankly, anybody could do that. So I, I wanted to really make it so that his stats represented that. So he can do that. So there, he has uh, actions that involve his insane traps. He has actions that involve his ability to sort of pop in and out of secret doors if he's in his lair. Uh, and he certainly has the ability to make those traps activate in ridiculous ways, which they're just too much fun between what I call the whirly gig, which takes up 10 minutes of screen time of this whirling thing where he pushes knives into it. And uh, at the aforementioned web of spider mechanical spider web of doom and um, plenty of other falling and spiky and, and he burns people alive. So all that's in there. OK, so what are his stats? What are those like? Uh, well, not surprising. I mean, if you look at Mike Hargate, he is a jacked man. In fact, I think I mentioned that. So he is very strong yeah. and very resilient. So uh, I, he's low on wisdom because he's a little bit, you know, insane. Um, but he is definitely sort of this peak physical specimen. The movie implies that he's he's insane and believes he to be possessed, but we assume that he really is in the, in the game statistics. So I thought that would just make it more entertaining, and of course it it puts this different spin on him. So he is uh, undead and animated, and sort of it's a willing possession. Um, but yeah, the character is he's not a slouch. He's got over twelve hit dice. He's meant to be uh, a low tier but significant villain. And as we see in the movie, he has minions. So uh, the minions are a big part of that. He doesn't, um, I, we didn't need to stat them, but certainly the nature of his abilities support other um, sort of lesser minions intervening to help him fight the party. So he, I, I felt like he's a good uh, mid-tier bad guy. Mm -hmm. So yeah. where might he be used? Where could you see this character being dropped into an adventure? The fun part about him is he's he comes with it. Um, in fact, he's sort of indistinguishable from it. One of the things I sort of was fighting with was trying to figure out how to make the character fit anywhere. And I was like, no, he really belongs in his castle, right? He belongs in the bloody pit of horror. So um, he's great for castles. And of course, in role-playing games, especially fantasy role-playing games, they're everywhere. So he's ideally your haunted house kind of uh, haunted castle kind of villain. Um, wear traps but you know the modern equivalent of that is is the saw series which is very much the same concept so anything where he's in a place where you and i i see this loosely plausibly could have traps um i think somebody pointed out that the spider web of doom would have taken 40 he, i think he put it together in 40 seconds <laughs> so he clearly has some ability to put these things together very quickly 
And uh, it makes sense in that context because then the secret doors are not stretching disbelief if he's on a flat plane and disappearing and reappearing behind you. So I think um, any crumbly, creepy house, if you happen to want to play a game where you, you take lewd photos, I mean, he could work there too. Well, I don't know. I think you need to get consent from your players. <laughs> That's gonna, a different dungeon gonna, game. It's a different dungeon game. <laughs> so where is this? Um, uh, remind me, because I'm not the DM. I do mm-hmm. play Dungeons & Dragons, but I don't know much about the uh, versioning that mm-hmm. that we're working with now. So where does this character fit in that? Yeah, so he. this is for 5th edition. And he's basically uh, he he's an NPC who's got uh, he's not he's got legendary action. So he's he is definitely meant to be faced as a f- sort of final boss kind of character. And I think that's appropriate. He certainly was that way in the movie. Okay. And so if people want to pull down this character and play him, where can they find it? Oh, so that would be on my Patreon. Um, but we're going to compile them. So we're announcing that as for the first podcast. Uh, I've already released a five E RPG Gothic Adventures supplement which sort of provides rules for a lot of what we're talking about in terms of horror but we um are going they're going to release all 50 where i think of me fondly as i try to come up with 50 monsters or villains uh we're going to do a 50 uh, gothic villains uh book so there will be a 5e foes gothic villains and he's the first one awesome. and that'll be available on uh, that'll be available on drive through rpg when we're finished but for the moment as it's released they'll be on my patreon where's your patreon uh patreon.com slash talion uh, we can put in the show notes, but yep, it, it's if you look up T A L I E N on Patreon, that's where you'll be able to find me. Perfect. Well, I think that does it for this first episode of Fifty Date Night Screams. We have a lot more date night movies to come for sure. Hopefully, at least some of them are as entertaining as this one was. So, thanks so much, Mike, for. Uh, agreeing to do this with me and for doing so much of the research and rolling up the character of the Crimson Executioner, who will be available to play in your D&D 5.0 campaigns. I have one more thing to add. Oh, I didn't ask that. I usually do. What do you have to say? Bloody pit of horror. (laughs) That was it. That was all? I just had to say it. You said it actually more than I did at this point. So All right. Okay. Are you done? I'm done now. All right. Thanks so much. And be sure to catch us next time on 50 Date Night Screams. Thank you. See you next time. Thanks for listening to 50 Date Night Screams. Be sure to check the show notes to learn where you can watch this movie for free. The quality isn't always the best when streaming, so we've also included a link to where you can purchase it. You can also get much more information, including the characters from this and all the 50 Date Night Screams episodes at betrayon.com slash Italian. Until next time, don't stop screaming. 50 Date Night Screams is a production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by Amber and Mike Tresca. 